thought the structure worked well, and now everyone knows your your favorite drugs. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> 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 yeah. This is when you come out as a cop, and you're like, "Well, okay, that's my job done." <laughs> <laughs> I think if nothing else, you definitely convinced me. Like, yeah, Americans are, you know, so so many, so much drugs. I mean, it's oh my gosh, it's a, it's a very it's it is a completely strange and unique uh country when uh when i saw anton when he was here um doing research he was like i just don't know how americans like stay happy about anything like this is an awful country it's it's clearly visibly <laughs> degrading everywhere <laughs> yeah it was like it's yeah, the drugs that's, that's, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of drugs yeah, yeah but it's, it's, it's like yeah. you know you like you go to britain like Brit people take a lot of drugs you know i was talking about like pub toilets earlier but you know i that's like recreational drugs and people are kind of going on having a bender, right? Like having a, have a sesh, yeah, yeah. have a night out. Um, and, and I, I think sesh. it's different in, in the U S because it seems much more like all pervasive. It's like on your time, in your time, you're watching Netflix, like you're having drugs because you're like medical, you know, or legal marijuana. And then it's like, you know, you're on SSRIs and you're blah, blah. It seems like, yeah, way more, way more kind of pervasive across the length of the day or length of the week or length of the month than, yeah. than kind of more the kind of sporadic uh, bender drug taking. Yeah, and it's um, it's just brutally instrumentalized in a way. I think I think that's what I was trying to get across in the first part of the introduction. Not necessarily that um, that the scale of drug use is one thing, but I think the the peculiar uses that Americans put drugs to is really the thing that I'm after. That that even with psychedelics, which are you know some of the most wild substances available to human beings, even those we've, we've now instrumentalized to the point where, you know, tech executives take them before going <laughs> into meetings or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, before, um, before recording a podcast. There's no Dionysian, <laughs> no Dionysian. It's all very, yeah. all, it's all very Apollonian? managed. And Apollo Apollonian. Apollonian drug taking. I don't know. Well, yeah. Not, yeah, because you can't really have Apollonian drug taking. So it's a weird, it's a weird well, mashup. I mean, I guess you could do, you could do. That's I think that's right. Actually, it's a, it's a contradiction. It's Apollonian drug taking. It's, yeah. it's, we, we've we've robbed Dionysus. That's maybe a maybe an yeah. episode title. There we go. That is the yeah. There you go. That's exactly the episode bit, title. Robbing a bit, robbing a bit Dionysus knowing. or something. It's a bit smart. Oh look at us. We're it's a bit smart. And... It's a bit too, yeah. It's a bit potentially a bit too too smart and nerdy. A bit pretentious. Um, I mean, I did come up with that. So it's I, a podcast I'm, called Alpha Bunga Bunga. Okay, now that I've got your attention, welcome. This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. <laughs> My name is Alex Hercule in Sabala, Brazil, and this podcast is, as always, Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury, England. Hello. Hey. George Hoare in London, England. Hello. Hey, Lon London, England, indeed. Yeah, hi. Yeah. <laughs> and there are other Londons available. Uh, and in Phoenix, Arizona, Benjamin Fong. Hello. Hello once again. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. George, why don't you take us away? Yeah, so, um, yeah, Alex, you've, you've stolen my thunder a little bit by introducing uh, or by saying hello to Ben. But yeah, very um, glad today to be joined by Ben Fong, who teaches at 
Arizona State University and whose writing has appeared in Catalyst, Jacobin and Damage magazine, where he's also an editor. Um, so Damage has its first, I should put, um, yeah, you know, recommend this very heartily to listeners. Um, it looks great and the words are good too in Damage's first print issue. So do pick that up if you uh, get a chance. Um, but most We're going to link to this in the show notes if you're not a reader of Damage uh, magazine yet. Uh, there's links to make it as easy as possible for you to just go and look in your app and go, oh, show notes. Okay, I'm going to click that and it'll take you to a website. And then from there, you can subscribe. Um, it's a quite seamless process. I, I recommend following that process all the way to the end. There you go. I mean, you could also just Google it. I mean, that's, you know, you can do that these days. But yeah, follow the follow the show note link. Um, but as I was saying, the most important reason or the, the most germane to um, today's discussion uh, why Ben is joining us is because his book Quick Fixes Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge has just been published and that's what we're going to be talking about drugs as Alex said in his attention grabbing introduction. Um, drugs are always in the news but Ben before we recorded you were you were um, talking us a little bit through uh, Biden and the possibilities of marijuana legalization that he he has at his fingertips. Yeah, I mean, in short, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it's it sort of flies under the radar a little bit, but marijuana legalization or or marijuana descheduling, to be precise, is something that he could do basically any day. It's it can be done by executive order, no act of Congress. Um, and there's an open question why he doesn't do it. Um, marijuana legalization, it's a uh, broadly majoritarian issue. I think it usually polls at like in the high 60s in approval rating. Um, so most Americans are behind it. Um, I don't know the exact political calculations um, behind the decision not to deschedule it. If I had to guess, however, uh, America does have, uh, as I'll get into in a bit, a full one-fifth of the incarcerated in for nonviolent drug offenses. And if marijuana was descheduled, you'd have this enormous contradiction of a lot of people in prison for what is now, in the eyes of the federal government, a fully legal drug. Mm -hmm. um, a, a sort of more interesting um, parallel process happening right now is that uh, MDMA, or more commonly known as ecstasy, it is scheduled to become uh, FDA approved as a medical treatment um, soon basically any day now. Uh, some said it was going to be 2023, uh, but it's looking like first or second quarter of 2024. And that doesn't, um, I don't think that has the same kinds of political contradictions involved. And there's a certainly a, mm. a, a broad uh, medical psychedelic movement pushing that forward. So I think we could probably see the legalization of um, various psychedelics before we see the descheduling of marijuana. So just to, just a, yeah. a quick follow up on that. So MDMA, or as Americans like to call it, Molly, I, I believe. Yep. Um, a, a, what's it a treatment for? Like not having a, a good enough time. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> what, what's the rationale for like, and you know, having this as a medical treatment? It doesn't seem that medically suited to. Except it's actually not, got a pretty old thing. old history. Um, you know, uh, in the in the fifties when. Uh, portions of the CIA's vast quantity of psychedelics began leaking out into American elite circles. There was a lot of therapeutic interest in uh, psychedelics for uh, for the treatment of, of anxiety. Um, it was sort of fit within a psychoanalytic um, model, and it was thought that psychedelics um, 
in regulated settings helped speed up the therapeutic process. And there were a lot of people invested in this. And um, when prohibition of LSD came in and, and other psychedelics in the 60s, a lot of people in the therapeutic community really lamented the loss of what they thought were, were drugs with real potential for um, dealing with trauma and mm-hmm. alcoholism and depression and anxiety, stuff like that. Um, the same thing happened with MDMA in the 80s. There was a, a big therapeutic community that formed around um, uh, Leo Zeff and Sasha Shulgin, a lot of other people. Um, and they they thought that MDMA was a really helpful adjunct to talk therapy, that it was something that could speed up the therapeutic process. And MDMA was uh, scheduled in 1985. And um, and when that happened, again, they sort of lamented the loss of this this drug that they thought could really um, benefit a lot of people. And, and when that happened, um, a lot of those people kind of went underground for a while. But there were people like Rick Doblin at the multi... Um, I'm going to mess up the name, MAPS, um, the uh, the Psychedelic Center, uh, who really sort of, you know, were dead set on uh, showing through research that psychedelics were really helpful in various things. And so in 2016, there were various breakthroughs, sort of uh, nice that it coincides with the beginning of the Trump era in America. Um, there were breakthroughs in various psychedelic studies, including um, phase three approval uh, for trials of, of, of MDMA. Uh, and I think in particular, it's linked to um, PTSD and depression, the treatment of those two. Um, but it's being researched and tested for a whole range of, of conditions. And, um, you know, uh, I think that the one key lesson in the history of drugs that we can take is that drugs make us feel better. Despite all the neurobiological chatter you hear, the one lesson we know is that drugs make us feel better. And um, MDMA can do that. And I don't doubt that when it comes on the market, a lot of people will turn to it um, to deal with, um, you know, the various crises of mental health that we're going through right now. I mean, you say Mm, it's a coincidence, but a lot of Americans did hallucinate this all-powerful orange figure there at the top of the government. So, you know, I guess it maybe wasn't purely by accident. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't know how to make sense of that. It was it was uh, kind of a remarkable year for psychedelic research, and everyone was so hallucinating about Trump that they neglected the actual hallucinogens. <laughs> but more more mainstream, perhaps, or or to kind of I guess yeah. move more from well, maybe not the margins. Maybe that's just my like um, lens that I'm putting on it. But the I think one of the things that comes through in in the book, or you, you know, the starting point is that. Americans' drug consumption today is is massive. You call it world historical. Um, you know what is? Could you give us a bit of a, a sense of this kind of across all the different drugs? Kind of what's the market? What's the overall kind of pattern of drug usage in in the US today? You you sort you use this phrase. It's a giant palliative care unit. You know, related <laughs> to um, uses of, of of opiates. Um, so yeah, what's what is this kind of status of, of drugs in America? Is it, you know, an everyday thing for most people? Um, we're, we're in a totally unique situation. Um, this was, uh, my, my interest in the topic was sort of, uh, born out by my own personal experience, just sort of like talking to people. Uh, it seems like a lot of people in the United States are, um, using drugs medically or recreationally in, <clears throat> in very new ways. And when I looked into it, it's it's fairly shocking. You know, I mean, Americans, we comprise you know, somewhere between four and five percent of the world's population. 
but we're consuming 80% of its opioids. Uh, we're consuming a bit more than 80% of its uh, ADHD medications or uh, amphetamines and amphetamine-like drugs. And really in the, um, in the 21st century, uh, drug use across the board, it, it's at historic highs and all of the trends are going up. So, you know, I think the most familiar um, part of this is the opioid crisis and the associated deaths of despair. But really, you name the drug and it's um, Americans are using a lot of it. Um, uh, marijuana, benzodiazepines, amphetamines, uh, antidepressants, antipsychotics. Um, all are at historic highs in terms of their use, like even above sort of like the 60s countercultural binge, uh, and all the trends are going up as well. Um, you know, this at the same time that we've got the largest prison system in the world, and again, like I said at the beginning, a full one-fifth of people in prison in for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, that's just a pretty massive contradiction, uh, and I, you know, wrote the book to try to make sense of why that is. Mm. No, I think it's a it's an important starting point that you know uh, carceral response, but widespread usage. Um, and I could, think one, could I just could yeah, I just intervene? Yeah, uh, just to um, ask a bit more on that. I suppose it'd be useful. So most of my associations or my kind of images of drug consumption, I guess, are um, either cultural or you know taken from what's being currently debated. So the opioid crisis is associated, like you say, with the deaths of despair pheno phenomenon, Rust Belt kind of Trump voters, um, and um, the you know suffering of the white working class, I guess. Uh, then you got kind of cocaine associated as the kind of banker asshole drug of the 1980s and whatnot. Um, we spoke, you know, kind of we've spoken about drugs and relate on this podcast in relation to um, ecstasy being associated with the end of history and so on. And so when you're saying that all drugs kind of are being consumed at historic highs in America, I was wondering how does it break down perhaps um, – if you could break it down for us, perhaps geographically or demographically and class-wise, if there's any kind of associations um, or kind of, or maybe more importantly, I suppose, patterns in the data that become visible. Yeah, I should make um, one exception to the list I gave before, which is cocaine. Uh, and, and this is a fairly uh, remarkable story in itself. While all other drugs are uh, at historic highs in terms of their use, um, American cocaine consumption still remains pretty low. It dropped pretty precipitously in the mid-2000s, and it hasn't recovered. And um, I, I think drug experts are really at a loss as to why that is. Um, there's still a lot of cocaine um, uh, production around the world. It's just not Americans anymore that are the primary uh, consumers of it. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's just a really interesting drug culturally because cocaine came to prominence as the use of all other drugs was falling just as the neoliberal period was, was being inaugurated. So marijuana use, amphetamine use, benzodiazepine use, these are all cratering in the 70s after the Controlled Substances Act. And that's when Andean cocaine comes to fill the void. Uh, and then now that neoliberalism is crumbling, cocaine use is at an all-time low. So it really is uh, kind of the drug of neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, it, 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 actually, it's to, funny you say that just because I, I was thinking, well, you know, but there's so many memes and everything about cocaine. It seems kind of culturally present, at least observing American things from afar via the Internet. Um, but actually, it, in, I was thinking of saying that and then I realized actually, but a lot of it is kind of British. And, you know, cocaine has become a major 
thing in Britain, you know, would talk about it being like used in football grounds and by football supporters it, really publicly. Um, this was a big thing in, in the European Championships in, in 2021. Um, and it just seems to be incredibly present in the UK. You know, like every every kind of random little pub has like queues going to the men's room, which like never happened because you don't get queues going to the men's room unless people are going to take drugs in there um, or there's some like sort of blockage in the toilets. But generally it's the drugs. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I, I wonder maybe that's, that's you know, Britain being stuck in neoliberalism more than the US is. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a hypothesis to explore. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get away from the cultural references. It's just a really um, fun drug to capture a lot of the spirit of the sort of like uh, of neoliberalism. Um, but it is, yeah, it, it's it's sort of um, it's sort of cratered. So there is that disjunction between the uh, cultural prominence of cocaine and Americans' actual actual use of it. Um, to, to to pick up on the other thread of, of Phil's earlier question, um, one thing that is, I think. Um, very noticeable about the present moment is that it's pretty widespread socially. So traditionally, um, American drug sub subcultures have been associated with particular uh, particular groups. Um, you know, I think probably the most famous episode here is um, is the crack scourge in the '80s. You know, that was associated primarily with poor black users. Um, it was uh, you know dilapidated urban uh, neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and so, and, you know, if you just go back through history, oftentimes you find some kind of, uh, stereotype associated with the drug in question. So, uh, you know, housewives and benzodiazepines in the fifties, um, you know, hippies and psychedelics in the sixties. If you go all the way back, you know, um, like Chinese immigrants and opiums, uh, cocaine and black stevedores, uh, marijuana and Mexicans. Um, so you, you, you've always found these associations, uh, with particular drug subcultures. And today I would say a lot of these things are falling apart. I mean, you know, people who I would never expect to offer me mushrooms today are doing so. Um, it's just the, the, the kinds of drug who, subcultures. Who, who do you mean? Who do you mean? Uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's say that. Uh, no, um, you know, I mean, people from the professional classes who don't like strike right. you as interested in, um, in drug voyages in general, uh, yeah. are, are, are newly interested in substances that they, uh, have, you know, kind of brutally instrumentalized in a lot of ways, but they're, they're genuinely interested as well in the different substances. And I, I would say across the board in, in, in different ways that I'd have to, you know, maybe spend a whole podcast sort of, uh, unpacking, um, drug use is just all pervasive kind of. And, and that's the phenomenon I really wanted to, to capture. It's no yeah. longer confined to particular subcultures. It's now society-wide. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that comes, you know, through in the book that there is this, you know, there's almost a new, a new era of just very widespread American um, drug consumption. But one of the things you, that you do do in the book is try and give a bit of an overview of a periodization of drug usage in America with alternating phases of crackdowns and normalizations. And on this podcast, we, we do tend to be big fans of periodizations. So could you recap this a little bit for our listeners? I think you've kind of mentioned this already, but I mean, it doesn't really work to have a table. Um, but you know, I'm, I will repeat my, my fandom of tables for in explaining things. So yeah, if you could tabulate the periodization, uh, verbally, that would be great. Thanks. 
Um, sure. I mean, part of the argument of the book is that um, trends in drug usage like closely match uh, changes in, in different regimes of capitalist society. And so the periodization is nothing very, very novel. I think it's just adding the history of drugs to it. So um, you could sort of think of the modern history of drugs as cycling between these periods of crackdown and demonization and then relative normalization. Uh, but I would say this um, this central paradox of American drug use, the sort of love-hate relationship we have with drugs is evident throughout. Um, so the first phase, it's roughly industrialization through the interwar period. Uh, at this time, you get this enormous patent medicine industry. Um, so, you know, you can walk into any, any pharmacy and get medically pure heroin, cocaine, chloral hydrate, basically anything you want. Um, but you also, of course, get the rise of temperance movements and, uh, global drug controls. Uh, these controls were very much spurred on, uh, by the U S. Um, and in the second period, it's the roughly the Fordist period. You get this rising consumer society and uh, the old uh, paternalism of the temperance movement kind of falls away. I would say it falls away for good. Um, you know, you don't get an investment in a national temperance project ever again. Um, and in its place, you get the normalization of a wide range of drugs. So this is uh, the time of peak consumption of coffee and cigarettes in America, but also, you know, amphetamines, benzodiazepines, barbiturates. Uh, these are all fully normalized in the post-war period, sort of taken and distributed like adult candy almost. Um, the third period is uh, the neoliberal period. It's very conveniently inaugurated uh, with the acute phase of the war on drugs launched by Nixon. Uh, 1970, you get the Controlled Substances Act. Um, this is the time when uh, this is a time of crackdown. You get a new prohibitionist attitude. And um, this is the time when the carceral system in the United States really begins to balloon. Um, and then the final period is the one we're currently living through. Uh, you know, the war on drugs, it um, it continues apace. You know, it's not it's uh, it's still happening. Um, I would argue that it's kind of happening in zombified form, like the energy for it is no longer mm. there. It's not just the left that's critiquing it. It's also people on the right as well. The right, uh, the, the, the libertarian right uh, has actually long been uh, a critic of the war on drugs because it sort of interrupts free markets. Um, so the energy is no longer there for it, um, even though it's still going on in some form. Um, but we're also seeing broad decriminalization and legalization trends with different drugs. Uh, and it's a very uncertain period, like as, you know, with um, the conceptualization of the creating, cratering of neoliberalism, no one's really sure what comes next exactly. There are sort of different possibilities, but I would... In, in most senses, I'm um, hesitant to predict, uh, you know, predict things about the future of drugs. No, thanks. That's a really helpful um, potted history, I guess. Yeah, and it is, it is worth repeating that that kind of, you know, zombie war on drugs and possibly a bit of uneven normalization, but tending towards that. That's the the kind of the the context that we're in in today in 2023. Um, and I guess the central sort of theoretical claims of the book are presented as sort of a set of overlapping theses. So work is what makes drug usage normal or otherwise. Atomization is the unconscious region for, for drug usage. If I'm butchering any of these too much, do do jump in um, and, and correct me. Um, drug organizations are normal capitalist enterprises. The distinction between licit and illicit drugs is class-based. 
and drug policy is not really about drugs. So particularly, or maybe to kind of turn turn it around a little bit in reference to this last one. So if drug policy is not really about drugs and the history of drugs is not really about drugs either, then is this book, is this whole discussion not really about drugs? Like we've we've obviously mentioned quite a few, but is it really just a kind of a reflection of, you know, wider, you know, stages of capitalism or political or cultural tensions within America? Is that what really, you know, drug policy, drug arguments are about? I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, on its surface, the book is definitely about drugs. You know, each each chapter covers uh, the, the modern history of uh, a drug or a class of drugs and drugs organize the entire book. So it's definitely about uh, about drugs in that sense. Um, but uh, as you say, it's, it's also not about drugs. And I sort of see um, uh, contemporary attitudes about drugs and drug consumption trends as really reflecting larger social trends. Um, and you know, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of speculation about what it is that drugs do for us. But I think the one reliable thing we can say about drugs is that they allow us to have better experiences than not, you know, at work, at play and casual conversations, stressful environments, and a lot of different situations, drugs help us. And if we accept that basic claim, then kind of all of the interesting follow-up questions there are about um, what our experience is, like what stressors exist in society, what are the sources of uh, anxiety and depression, um, what kinds of expectations are we trying to live up to, what kinds of uh, what kinds of miseries and social ills are we attempting to cope with, um, and so the book is organized around drugs, but these are really the, the questions that kind of occupy um, the book. Yeah, I guess to go on to the the main kind of body of the book, which is all these different, you know, as you kind of um, alluded to, all these chapters on different individual drugs. Um, so you've got coffee, you've got cigarettes, you've got alcohol, you've got opiate, opiates, you've got amphetamines, psychotropics, psychedelics, cocaine, marijuana. Sounds a bit, I didn't really give it the, the oomph it, it deserved there, but it does sound a bit like a Queen, uh, Queens of the Stone Age song, if you put it like that. Um, but one, what I guess I wanted to... Well, and and to actually, one of, one of the benefits of, of, of the book, perhaps unintended and certainly unexpected, was to make me want to take uh, each of the drugs in sequence as I read through it, which was fine for the first three because it was coffee, alcohol, and, and cigarettes. And, I, and so I indulged in those, but um, I held back for the, for the next couple of chapters. Um, the yeah, the fourth chapter is a big one. You go coffee, cigarettes, alcohol, and then opiates. Yeah, it, 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 it goes big. And I wasn't ready for that jump yet. It was like I needed to. I needed a gateway drug, perhaps. Um, for, you know, exceptionally, a gateway drug might actually might actually be a thing. Um, even though you, uh, you know, reasonably debunk yeah. that idea throughout the book. Anyway, sorry. No, they, I mean, they often say, you know, what gateway drug? What happens if you get stuck at the gateway and you can't make it onto the the good stuff after that? So there are <laughs> there are problems with with that approach, I think. Um, but yeah, what I wanted to do was kind of. Yes, I guess the, the four of us just discuss a little bit. Basically, what what do we think is the single most representative drug of the experience of late capitalism? And I guess Ben, you have the advantage here if we're talking specifically about America. Um, but I think just in general, this is one thing that, as I move through the book, I was like, wow, that 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 chapter describes everything about capitalism. Oh no, that one does better, and that one does. So yeah, I mean, I'm not going to put us all on the spot. Uh, right away, I think we should move through those those drugs and then come back to that at uh, 
the uh, end. So yeah, the f- first of all, this you know heavy you know chapter in the uh, in the book on opiates. So um, I think you know we've already mentioned this the opioid crisis in in the US. Um, and Ben, you go through a bit of this history of opiates and this idea of kind of civilizing the Orient, um, but also say that when we're talking about drugs, the experience is 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 crucial. I mean, is it too simple then to say that opiates um, are pain relief, and as long as there is pain, understood as widely as possible, physical, psych, psychic, whatever, um, there will be opiates. So basically, you know, American opiate use today shows that the country is uh, in a lot of pain. I, I think it does. I think the story about pain is um, a relatively more uh, contemporary one, really. Um, it's it's uh, uh, arguably what made possible the opioid crisis in the United States. It was a rethinking of what pain is, how we measure it, also how we treat it. Um, and a kind of revolution in the conceptualization of pain was accomplished in the 80s and 90s. You know, before Before then, doctors were pretty uh, reticent to prescribe opiates because they had the cultural associations with them in mind. Um, but a few things happened in the eighties, you know, you got, um, you got the development of new, uh, disciplinary fields and concepts like palliative care, chronic pain, stuff like that. Um, you also interestingly got the introduction of pain scales. So, you know, you might've gone to the doctor and, uh, seeing like a scale of like from a sad face to a happy face and you're supposed to circle what 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 your pain level is from one to ten according to the different faces um, that was an invention uh, of of the 80s um, and it actually put doctors at a kind of legal disadvantage once you have a piece of paper that says oh this is how much pain I'm in and there's some disjunction between that and what the doctor actually prescribes for you they're kind of on the hook for it in in new ways so the introduction of this just basic pain scale kind of changed um, medical practices um, and from these developments, we, uh, you know, we came to think almost that people had a right to pain relief, uh, that that pain was not something we had to, to to suffer in life, that we should be alleviating it more than we were. Um, and this just so happened to coincide, of course, uh, with, um, you know, the development of a number of different opioid uh, products. Uh, you know, P- Purdue Pharma's Oxycontin is perhaps the most well-known of these, but Really, it was across the board. There were a lot of pharmaceutical companies that were cashing in on the opiate pill boom. Um, so, so pain is definitely part of the story, but I would say it's more specifically related to the opioid crisis. That it's um, the the organizing function of pain as a concept in the world of opiates. It's you know really sort of fair, fairly new the last couple of decades. Um, and as you said earlier, the, the the broader argument of the chapter is basically from the 19th century on, there's been this really intimate relationship between opium and and uh, opium derivatives like morphine and heroin uh, and the conception of the Orient. And I kind of wanted to make sense of like why that was. And this is this sort of like kicks off in the late 19th century uh, with the yellow peril and the worry that all these Chinese opium dens were, you know, corrupting the youth and ruining everything on the West Coast, stuff like yeah. that. Um and, you know, w- w- what is it that we fear in opiates uh, and what what is it that has always been sort of associated with the Orient? Well, you know, the, they make us weak, they make us unmasculine, they make us lazy, dependent, stuff like that. And it, I think that opiates are just about the quickest escape from feeling responsibility, independence, I mean, basically all the things that um, American society demands of us and that amphetamines help us do opiates work at cross purposes with. And I think that's 
that's kind of it. That's both the danger and the appeal of opiates at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, nicely, nicely put. So, I mean, I, I was just wondering because it occurred to me, particularly in reading the conclusion to the book, Ben, um, when you talk about kind of people's fears also and, and kind of what drug abandoning oneself to drugs kind of means. And I wanted to drive at this a little bit further. And I maybe the this conversation about opiates is a good point to do it because opiates are um, the, the kind of the most um, or the kind of archetype of like abandonment to to just pleasure, right? And I think I wonder whether, you know, the fear of people that people have, and this doesn't just apply to opium or to downers or to uppers or, you know, it, or to psychedelics. It's really across the board, like that the kind of generalized fear of drugs is one that like, we're just going to abandon ourselves to it. We're going to uh, hand ourselves over entirely and we're going to give up, I think. And and then maybe there's a, maybe because of that fear that suggests that we kind of secretly want to give up, there's a desire to kind of give up. And that's why there's such a harsh resistance against drugs very often. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, th- these are just some thoughts I jotted down and I wonder what, um, whether you kind of agree with that or if you have a, some take on this. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a there's a book published about heroin in the 1970s called uh, "It's So Good, Don't Even Try It Once." <laughs> I think that really really captures the kind of fear behind it. the The fear is that drugs are too good; that they're going to be too good in satisfying our desires and wants. And I think that you know, um, drug warriors can trot out all sorts of reasons why prohibition uh, in various forms should be the case. Um, But I think at root, it's that fear. It's that fear that um, drugs are so good that they're going to take away from other pursuits, you know, work, family, God, whatever. Um, The drugs are that good. And, uh, you know, drugs are pretty good. Um, But I kind of think that 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 kind of brave new world uh, uh, nightmare um, that it, you can see in a lot of popular cultural depictions, uh, that, that, that nightmare that we're going to be just taken in by, by drugs and everyone's going to float in their own tub of butter. Um, I, I just don't think it's that convincing at the end of the day. I think drugs are very good. Um, but I don't think drugs can ever replace human relationships. For instance, they can certainly numb the pain of disconnection, but I don't think they can actually replace human social relationships. Um, they but can... isn't but isn't that what you're describing in your book? The kind of everybody, you know, when you talk about the sheer kind of world historic levels of drug consumption. Um, and obviously, I mean, it doesn't look like the kind of high tech utopia of Brave New World. It's much more kind of shabby and um you know disorganized and kind of unsystematic but isn't it i mean isn't it heading in that direction essentially that it is a state of everyone in their tub of butter like you put it um in in a way yes i i don't think it's a um a a tenable situation for the long term let me put it that way so i mean the title of the book is quick fixes right Um, and there's a certain denigration you could say in that title, right? Like a quick fix is not a real fix in some ways, but, um, you know, I think quick fixes can be good. Sometimes they're real fixes. Like anyone who's gone on YouTube and searched for home improvement repairs knows that a quick fix is a real fix sometimes. Um, the question is just how many of those quick fixes you can string together and have a sustainable structure. Um, and I think that's the ultimate question. And so, you know, um, drugs can numb the pain of human disconnection, but over the long term, I don't think that they can replace the kinds of things that we do on a human level. And um, perhaps, 
um, we're headed there in certain respects, but I think that there's going to be widespread discontent with that kind of culture uh, as well. Um, so I suppose it seems to me like there's two kind of claims at work in what you were saying. So one claim is like that there is in the among the drug warriors there is a lack of alternative. So kind of it's based on a fear, like you say, the drugs are too good. And therefore, it has to be kind of repressed and staved off, which is to say that drug warriors have nothing to offer. And they, at some level, they suspect, they or they know they have nothing to offer as a substitute for drug consumption. Um, on the other hand, the other claim you're saying is like that it isn't actually a fix for you know the problems of uh, modern life in whatever form um you wish to take you wish to kind of conceptualize them or think about them but that doesn't seem to me to you know that doesn't seem to me to suggest that there that it that it won't simply continue accelerating or expanding you know given the kind of problems or the kind of social problems that you identify um anomy and atomization and so on and like you say the pain of human um, disconnection alienation you know as broadly as you wish to conceive it you know that or all those things seem to me to suggest more drugs in our future rather than less drugs and it's very hard to imagine kind of a um a kind of a response to drugs that was countercultural in a sense you know so if drugs are so normalized that you have a kind of a response against drugs that makes them seem orthodox or oppressive in some way that it would be countercultural to resist drugs like straight edge punk or something yeah. yeah i mean those things never really take you know kind of in theory they should work you know but they never seem to take off like christian rock straight edge punk all of that stuff it never quite seems to work even though you can kind of see the rationale for it or why it should in principle work I think that you're right that there's two different projects at work in the book. Um, and just to be clear on the drug uh, warriorism front, the stuff that we were just talking about, um, that was that was me attempting to get at what the root concern was in, in drug warriorism, but it shouldn't be faulted just for that. I mean, um, at, at the beginning sure. of the conclusion of the book, um, I sort of just take apart, well, you know, well, how, how do you stop? Um, drugs from being distributed in society. You can like cut off production, you can deal with distribution, you can try to deal with demand. All of these ways fail in their own right. And there are also, you know, any number of pernicious consequences that follow from drug, yeah. drug warriorism as well. So practically, I think it's, it's, it's uh, a failure, it's been a failure. And at the end of that section, I was just trying to make sense of, well, why, given how irrational it is, like, what is, yeah. what is the motivating force behind it if it's been such a failure and that's yeah. where i got there but but as you say there's there's another project in the book too which is that i'm very skeptical uh, skeptical of liberal drug reformism and the kind of uh, oftentimes the drug enthusiasm that follows yeah. from that yeah um and uh, you know in in the works of uh, a lot of these writers, which which can be very convincing on their own, you sort of get the feeling like, oh, if we just um, destigmatize these substances, uh, if we offer safe routes of administration and safe yeah. environments within to take within which to take the drugs, um, then uh, these can not only be a great um, medical boom, a sort of great great uh, sort of help to solving the mental health crisis today. 
Um, they can also just be a lot of recreational fun. Like let's let the sort of like constraints go and just let the drugs out and we'll, 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 we'll have a better, better society in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that you want to see that trend as not having sort of internal limits in the way that I do. I, right. I kind of think that um, that's one perspective on how drugs could shape society for the better. And certainly with the medicalization or the, the legalization of psychedelics, I think a lot of people are going to be on them in a short amount of time. And that's the one prediction I kind of make in the book that when yeah. psychedelics become legalized, they will very quickly replace uh, the old yeah. SSRIs, which aren't terribly effective as the main treatments for anxiety and depression. Um, yeah. That's one aspect of the legalization and decriminalization trends. Um, but the, the other aspect is sort of like visible, um, drug use in the streets of America, right? That's yeah. one, that's one part of it as well. And when people talk about decriminalization and legalization without also the kinds of jobs and social programs and improvements in healthcare that, that would allow us to deal with escalating drug use, um, then you're not dealing with the essential contradiction of, of the moment. You know, yeah. I think the left in particular has this instinctive response to drugs, which is to say drug warrior isn't bad. Uh, let's legalize and decriminalize and these problems will go away. Well, you know, one, we're at this moment where um, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are some of the biggest psychedelic enthusiasts, right? Um, but at the same time, we have pretty visible social ills that follow from escalating drug use. Um, in 2021, the opioid death rate went over 100,000, 100,000 people. Um, so it's these wow. contradictions, I think, that we have to deal with today. We're at a very different moment. You know, this isn't the 1980s where we're, where we just have to sort of like fight against uh, the Reagan drug war. We're at this moment where the ills of de decriminalization and legalization are becoming apparent as well. Yeah. And I think that's exposed by the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, the, 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 well, look at what's happened with tobacco, right? And the way that that's been kind of excluded, both in terms of like shifting norms, but, you know, um, legal measures, taxation, et cetera, um, against smoking that, you know, you, you get this bizarre situation. I mean, I was struck by this, I think when I was in New York two years ago, when, you know, it was easier to find cannabis products than it was to get a refill for my vape, which the city of New York had, had banned. That's, that's not tobacco, it's nicotine. But yeah, like, and I think that kind of exposes where, um, where this sort of thing ends up if you just say, hey, let's let's liberalize at this point in time, um, that they'll that it'll just be a replication, I guess, of what the tobacco industry maybe was, you know, before before the war on, mm. on tobacco. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to, to move us on, although I think that that is a good point, Alex, the I guess the if that was kind of opiates, um, or the, the discussion kind of started there, and it, you know, it seemed to be on the face of it, a pretty good, uh, like case for like opiates reflecting, you know, American life in 2023. But I wanted to offer up a few other um, uh, samples um, or a few other um, options um, for the most representative drug. The next one being amphetamines or the chapter on this you call um, inappropriate perseverance. Um, and this is about essentially about acceleration. So you, you um, um, conclude with a great quote from from Harmit Rosa, we are no longer running towards a bright horizon in the future. We are running away from the dark abyss behind our backs. So this idea that capitalism has accelerated social life to basically breaking point, um, you know, and this is the drug that helps us keep uh, keep up with this. So what 
Um, do you think you can make a case for the kind of amphetamine fueled acceleration, um, you know, in, in uh, late capitalism or, or post neoliberalism or neoliberalism or whatever phase we might be in? But this is the, um, you know, this excel this kind of, I guess you say, inappropriate perseverance. This is what most characterizes um, uh, America today from a drug point of view. So the, the first uh, marketed amphetamine in America was called Benzedrine. It was just uh, amphetamine. And it was marketed as a mood lifter at first. Um, but when its maker, SmithKline in French, which is today um, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, I think it's just abbreviated to GSK today. Uh, when it was first de debating uh, what it was going to release this chemical for, there were kind of three purposes that they were thinking of. Like one was... Um, was was elevating your mood, which is eventually what it was sold for. Um, one was mental and physical performance enhancement, um, and then the final was 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 just weight loss, like keeping you skinny. Um, and uh, though benzedrine was sold at first uh, to the purpose of mood elevation, it's it's kind of been amphetamines have been marketed to all three purposes at various times in American history. Um, and with those three things in mind, it's not hard to see the appeal, you know, um, they make you smart, they make you peppy, they make you skinny, like who doesn't want that, right? It's a, it's a pretty clear, uh, the, the appeal is pretty clear. Yeah. Um, there's this great, uh, amphetamine history called on speed, uh, which is by the historian Nicholas Rasmussen. And he says that almost more than for its pharmacological effects, amphetamine has, has a kind of central place in American history because it's almost like it created a dream that we're trying to realize, right? So there's other drugs that we can take to be smart or uh, stay skinny or be peppy yeah. or whatnot. But it was really when amphetamine came on the market that that dream of finding some drug to make ourselves, you know, always brilliant and always up for the task to like totally yeah. optimize ourselves into the best versions of ourselves to always be awake and alert to stay skinny and fit like all this stuff, it's, you know, we, we have non-amphetamine drugs to help us do it, but amphetamines inaugurated the dream. And uh, America is, of course, the land of, of dreamers. Um, so in, in that sense, I think um, amphetamines do really capture a lot of aspects of the American experience. The kind of uh, pharmacological upgrade, you know, you can be, you can be limitless, you can achieve everything, you can, you yeah, know, just yeah. get, get more done, be more, um, effective yeah i think um obviously that's possibly not the the reality um that they delivered or have been delivering for um people on them but i, I think um there's something in that as well i want to throw all these together and then we can discuss them as i, a, as I, I want to say is, say too yeah. though amphetamines are pretty good at those three things like um pharma has searched agonizingly for a safe weight loss medication and i've heard there's sort of new developments on that front today but they they haven't really found something that sort of does the job quite as efficiently as amphetamines um for for instance and the same thing with um mood elevation as well you know i mean uh, one of the reasons that the SSRIs came on the, the, the market in the 80s um, uh, was to like replace the old amphetamines. It was because the amphetamine boom sort of like cratered with the Controlled Substances Act that you needed to find something else to elevate your mood. But it was amphetamines that were sort of the drugs to do that in the post-war period. And arguably, they're, they're sort of better at dealing with these issues than the, the SSRIs, which I, I think now we're at this moment where people are reckoning with the fact that 
they're just not that that great, you know, due to due to the deficiencies of randomized clinical trials and whatnot. Um, the, the kinds of drugs that were that were really marketed as these these revolutionary drugs in the '80s, Prozac, Zoloft, and whatnot. They they just haven't been what they've they've marketed themselves to be. And amphetamine is not a bad alternative in that in that world. So in still in uh, in in all three of those areas, being smart, being peppy, being thin. Amphetamines are still pr- pretty good drugs. We haven't found great replacements for it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how, how we could summarize the two the two cases so far, but I've, I've I wanted to just bring in a, a couple more um, candidates. The third being psychotropics. So the chapter on this stands out, I think, quite a bit because it's you know it's on a wide range of drugs um, and it's less about the kind of um, illicit recreational, illicit work related drug use and it's much more about the industry so the pharma industry medicalization um, and all these sorts of um, trends through which you could argue you know that's quite definitive of 20th century um, American capitalism Um, so yeah I mean to what extent do you think that this um, inherent illness paradigm which you say is at the core of like the medicalization and pharmaceuticalization um, of the American public you know, the question then would be, do we have this inherent illness paradigm? Has this redefined how we think about not just drug usage, but ourselves? As you say, the the psychotropics chapter of the book is kind of an odd one. Uh, I cover a range of, of uh, psychiatric medications in it. Um, but it's really sort of about um, changes in psychopharmacological justifications. Uh, and, and the one thing that I emphasize early on in the chapter is that Roughly before 1980, um, those justifications were very often social in nature. So, um, in in that chapter and elsewhere, I include some um, some uh, pharmaceutical ads for different different drugs in the book from the 60s and 70s. And in a way, they're they're pretty creepy. You know, there's uh, there's an ad for Cerax um, with a woman behind bars of brooms that says something like. Uh, you can't set her free, but you can make her feel less anxious, like stuff like that. Um, the social yeah. imperatives are pretty, pretty uh, on the surface. They're a bit too honest, but you know the basic the basic idea at the time is, you know, this is a stressful society that we live in. Our drugs are here to help you keep going. That's a sort of basic justification. And in the 80s, those justifications came to look very different. Um, you know, after the supposed uh, biological revolution in psychiatry, this is, this is, you know, the moment when everyone started referring to serotonin reuptake and adenosine receptors and things like that in order to say why and what, like why we're taking these psychiatric medications. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that there's pretty scant evidence that, um, that, that mental disorders can be tied so cleanly to underlying brain states, um, this, this revolution was tremendously successful. You know, the pharmaceutical companies essentially needed it in its ad comp- copy. And that's sort of, that's why we have it. And I, I would say in a lot of ways, it's redefined how we think about human interiority. Um, so that it's no longer yeah. the old sort of psychoanalytic models. It's now like, okay, what kinds of brain states require what kinds of drugs? And in that situation, uh, it's obviously really beneficial to pharmaceutical companies. Um, just to say a little bit about the inherent illness uh, model, that's that's an idea I take from the anthropologist Joseph Dumit in this book, Drugs for Life. Um, and just briefly, you know, he, he argues that 
we used to be a culture of inherent health. So, um, you know, in other words, we, we thought of ourselves as inherently healthy. We go to the doctor when something goes wrong, we get it fixed, and then we stop going to the doctor, right? That's the inherent health model. In the inherent illness model, we, we sort of take ourselves to be more primarily sick or at least at risk of being sick in some way. And so we go to the doctor, yeah. not, to, not when we're sick, but, but for regular checkups to sort of stave off those risks. And um, certainly there's a way in which the inherent illness model is, uh, is, is good. It's, it's better in a way to like go for regular maintenance checkups. Um, but especially in a country with a failing healthcare system like my own, um, the model kind of encourages this, uh, I mean, what, what Dumit calls a rational paranoia. You know, you're, you're, you've got this vigilant self-monitoring. Uh, we're always worried about the underlying conditions, the risk factors, uh, the genetic disorders, stuff like that. And you can never know too much about your health. Mm. I, think this, I think that this rational paranoia that Dumit talks about, combined with the neurobiological reductionism, it produces a kind of crazy-making situation. It's this endless search for... Um, the solutions to our everyday suffering that reduce that suffering to the neurobiological realm in such a way that we completely misunderstand why we're why we're unhappy in the first place. Yeah, no, I think that that inherent illness paradigm or seeing there's always a problem to be solved. It just fits so um, clearly with the you know that that is a very helpful um, paradigm for the pharmaceutical industry to to put forward. It's a bit like technology, you know. Um, it's better to uh, create problems that you have solutions for than to solve problems, um, as Morozov might might put it. Um, but just moving, just ask, moving. Uh, yeah, go on. Just, just briefly, like, I mean, do you see a, a a connection? I don't know if you kind of suggest this in the, in the book, but obviously you've put um, things like SSRIs next to you know cocaine and um, opium and um, mushrooms, right? Um, and whether you see kind of any connection between those, um, other than you know the the kind of main proposition of the book which is just that americans are taking a huge amount of drugs they've always taken a lot of drugs and now they're taking more than ever um but that if there's any kind of do you, do you make a connection to it i mean i guess one one to suggest one would be like oh people are taking loads of um recreational drugs um whether it's to numb pain or to party and then like that messes them up and then they um need ssris to kind of even them out or you know they they're take take too much adhd drugs when they're young and then they have a crisis when they're an adult and then they get put on ssris or i don't know i mean these are literally just off the top of my head the, the the limiting constraint of the book was just I, I I chose to focus on any drugs that are considered psychoactive that they affect our our mental condition in some way. Um, I, I had actually thought about writing about non psychoactive drugs because they're kind of well they're they're oftentimes the most profitable so cholesterol medication and arthritis medication stuff like that uh, but those didn't didn't make the cut. Um, but the, the the psychoactive component is is the part that I, f I focus on in the book, and I, I would say that I don't take the I don't take the line between medical and recreational to be that bright, and I think that we do a lot of disservice to the the uh, the, the conceptualization of why it is that we're taking different psychoactive substances if we hold that line to be too clear, mm -hmm. um, because uh, you know. Like um, when, when people, 
um, in, you know, engage in different forms of drug use outside of a medical context. In, in a lot of cases, you could see that almost as them trying to self-medicate in a situation where healthcare is either unaffordable or unaccessible for various reasons. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to sort of, yeah, draw that line too cleanly. And in any event, I think it's helpful to see all psychoactive substances as of a piece um, because they're so rigidly divided in everyday conversation. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's fair enough. So just to, to go to the, the fourth of the, the four main contenders, because I do want to take us through this, because I'm actually interested. I don't know what I think the answer to this question is of the most representative drug. Um, but yeah, what's what's the case for cocaine to be this the kind of the most American drug? I mean, is it something along the lines of you've got the origins of cocoa in the Americas, you know, racial differences between the understandings of crack and cocaine, um, you know, the mythical or otherwise presence of cocaine in the most american of drinks coca-cola um you know and in the american science of psychoanalysis and then finally you know this this is the drug which in popular imagination at least fueled the um you know near near liberalization of america the whole world through um through its uh, uh uptake in uh batemanite nostrils you could say <laughs> so yeah do you think that's the um anything to add to that or would you agree this, there is a case to be made I think the case for cocaine being the drug of neoliberalism is pretty clear. Uh, and in the appendix of the book, I um, I put uh, different psychoactive drug use consumption trends all together in a graph, and it's pretty noticeable. You know, you see um, you see uh, cocaine rising very precipitously in the sixties and seventies, and then dipping very precipitously in the mid two thousands. Uh, it, it's, you know, it represents that wall street mentality. It's been, you know, there's a reason that cocaine features in, uh, just about every film about finance bros. Uh, it's this ephemeral jolt of irrational confidence, you know, like we know the, we, we know the appeal and I think it, it represents well the, the real narcissism of the culture that attended the neoliberal turn. Um, and you know, you, you mentioned the distinction between like cocaine and, and crack. Um, I think most people know at this point that, um, uh, pharmacologically they're basically the same drug, right? Crack is just rock cocaine. They just make, mix in a little baking soda so that it's, it's smokable. Um, but the, the different kinds of associations with the two drugs, it really represents that schizoid relationship to drugs in the American experience, just to, to a T, you know, um, it's, it, it's sort of forgotten now, but in the seventies, a lot of people thought that cocaine was quickly going to become a legal recreational drug. You know, a lot of you know, prominent doctors, you can go back and say, see, see them saying, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's about as harmful as potato chips, right? There's like nothing wrong with cocaine. Like we should legalize it tomorrow. It's not a big deal. Hmm. And then of course the eighties come along and there's the crack scare and you get wildly different cultural associations and two of maybe the most regressive pieces of American legislation ever, the 1986 and 88 anti-drug abuse acts. Um, and this, 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 um, disjunction between the perceptions of cocaine and crack, it, it's evident in a lot of other periods in American history too, to, to some extent, 
uh, if you look at the disjunction between like uh, the perceptions of opium and the Chinese in the in the late nineteenth century, and then uh, the use of morphine in this, the so called doctor visiting classes, these are essentially the same drug, but you had wildly opposed social judgments about them. You know, same thing with heroin and benzodiazepines in the fifties. Um, yeah. So, so in that sense, that particular um, schizoid relationship to drugs, it's really really well represented with cocaine. So I just wanted to summarize and then, you know, bring maybe Alex, you in first as to, you know, to answer this question. But yeah, so we've got like the case for for opiates being this most representative drug. They're the, you know, the best at numbing the pain of disconnection, maybe the best, the best drug in terms of being people being worried that they're just too good. Um, you know, that the phrase kind of used about heroin, you know, don't, don't even try it once it's too good. And that's, that's, that obviously uh, might be pro-drug uh, advertising in the guise of anti-drug uh, messaging. Um, the second one is speed. So, you know, smart, peppy, skinny, you know, this is the most representative drug because it's the best at, at delivering, well, maybe not delivering the American dream, but, you know, being closely aligned to, to that dream of, of the, being a, a better American. Uh, psychotropics, the 20th century pharmacological re- revolution. Um, maybe this is the drug that's most representative because it's not even seen as a drug in a way, or these this collection of, of different sorts of drugs. They're more, um, you know, responding to an inherent illness that we have. Um, and they're, you know, part and parcel of this new kind of model of interiority. And it's about brains and chemicals, not, not psychoanalysis. And then finally, or fourth, um, there's cocaine. So this is the most neoliberal of drugs, the most um, capitalist, perhaps, you know, it's about greed, and it's a good um, representation of some of the the very split uh, approaches to to drug uh, policy that America has, has seen. So Alex, what do you reckon? Is it one of those four? Is it caffeine? Is it uh alcohol is it tobacco what's the what's the the thought, most american i thought drug? earlier you were going to be like we're going to come to alex as our resident cocaine expert or something like that um yeah i like the idea of this devolving into just the bunga guys talking about what their favorite drugs are <laughs> yeah the no that, that's that's specifically what i didn't say it's yeah. it's not like oh i love this drug i'm cool it's like what is the most representative american i mean drug? so so like i the, the cocaine thing i mean we've kind of uh, touched on this already but you know the the license that it gives you to be an asshole and i don't mean asshole necessarily in the aggressive sense but in the kind of it gives you license to not have to care anymore right of just like you don't really have to care about how you come across because you know you have this kind of confidence and you don't have to care about um how you're seen and and you know you just kind of just do it you know and kind of i think you always wish that you could in your daily life get by with that you don't have to do you know it's obviously this kind of mischaracterization of what emotional labor is but you know in the kind of dumb way that emotional labor has come to mean like having to care about your friends and listen to their problems you know like that cocaine means ah no more emotional labor right it's the it's the anti-work of emotional labor uh cocaine and like that i think holds a certain appeal when um in kind of communicative capitalism you have to be engaging with people whether you're in customer service or whether you know in a workplace where you have hr telling you exactly how to behave among other people um cocaine holds this appeal it's just like ah fuck it you know what i'm just gonna fucking do it and you can be and you can perform and be productive so you still have that satisfaction of, of something that social norms tell you you need to be doing you need to be productive but without all the kind of soft bullshit around it so i think that whole definitely kind of makes you, sense but that said are you I saying think that you, this is the most american drug or the, the the drug that you most 
associate with. You just want to be a coked up asshole who doesn't have to listen to their friends. <laughs> or, or are you saying that your American audience is all assholes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's a good answer here where I come off well. You know, either I've called Americans all assholes or assholes to be, or or I've revealed something about myself. Um, I'll uh, I'll take the latter approach just so as not to offend anyone. But no, I think I I think the the criteria to you know would have to be somehow linked to productivity right to always be kind of productive but um there's maybe other ways to be productive than like the cocaine productive sketch that i've just done um and you know i don't have an answer to this but um early in the book ben you're when you're talking about kind of up, that uppers and downers are often sold together you know this was like the perfect combination of course people just wore themselves out and kind of burnt out pretty quickly um but you know some ideally you'd have that right because you know labor needs to reproduce itself you can't just be productive all the time and a drug that made you kind of hyped up and productive um and concentrated and active at the same time that it um you know could allow you to kind of unplug um, productively and come back refuel the next day. That's the ideal. So um, maybe the future drug, um, you know, the, the, or the drug to come would be the drug that kills the come down. You know, that would be the ideal drug because um, mm. then you have consequence-free drug taking, which is, of course, everyone's dream. Wow, you're definitely threatening us with a good a good time there. And um, Phil, what about you, Alex? For Alex, it has to be tied to to productivity. I think he's ed- edging towards towards coke. What about you? I might go for a drug that you didn't actually list, um, George, as the most represent, just to underscore, as the most representative drug and certainly not um, anything like a favorite drug, but I think it'd be marijuana. Um, the more I think about it, why? well, the more I, because it's totally ubiquitous. So I think it fits kind of what we started talking about and that kind of, um, you know, it's kind of, I think in a way it is the kind of. Not the gateway drug. I mean, you know, I would, you, I mean, I, you know, I accept the kind of um, the conclusions of the research that Ben discusses, and it always seemed to me a bit pat in terms of understanding drug use. But it's so, you know, I mean, I know, I know people who smoke weed with their parents, you know, whereas I don't know anyone who would take, you know, cocaine with their parents or do other drugs with their parents or something like that, you know. Um, so the same way that they might consume alcohol or coffee or tobacco in a kind of, um, you know, in a kind of perfectly ordinary, respectable social setting. So it makes me think that it's ubiquity, but also it's specific effects of, um, you know, kind of passivity, um, dose of docility, withdrawal, numbing, but also kind of without, while well, still, you know, just kind of takes the edge off, um, does all of the does all of those things that it's supposed to um but is also still has a kind of a um like you say it's easy, like alex is talking about his time in new york it's kind of ubiquitous and yet somehow has managed to retain its appeal it's kind of rebellious um appeal in a way that tobacco doesn't you know tobacco is associated with big evil corporations while marijuana is somehow associated with sticking it to the man so i don't know how that I've, long that will last though you know, I know. Well, that might well change, you know. So indeed, it might well change is like on the on the cusp of some kind of legalization of marijuana and that you have kind of perhaps big brand names that might become associated with it, that might change. But it seems mm-hmm. to me in terms of a representative, to meet the kind of the criteria that George set out of a representative drug I, of this particular context and period, I think, you know, the opioid crisis is a serious one, but 
you know, kind of and very specific to America. But if you had to go for one that was both American, but also kind of, um, you know, global America, the American, the hinterlands of the American empire and where American influence and Western culture reaches, um, I think I'd go for marijuana. Hmm. That wasn't that wasn't on the one of the options, but um, yeah, and the, the chapter of the well, book. Well, I, I rebelled against your right, system. You went off, yeah. went off many, off many yeah. drugs. Yeah, it's so it's yeah. so classic. Like, here's the one thing that you can't uh, suggest. Well, this is the one thing I am going to suggest. So, yeah, fair fair <laughs> enough. That's a very. Um, but no, I, I'm I found found myself a bit a bit convinced as you were as you were talking there, Phil. Uh, ben, what about you? I mean, do you have a I was going to say, do you have a favorite, but that's not the right way to put it, of course. But do, do you have um, one that you think is really like just reflects this this history? Or maybe maybe I should go first, actually. Sorry, I was just going to extend the question to you. But you you will yeah, answer yeah, it, in, it. A, in a way that I won't be able to say anything after because I'll just have to agree. Otherwise, I'll look like a real um, idiot. But yeah, I think I think there is something about I'm going to kind of like break the, the question and say that there is I think there is almost two. You need that kind of the balance, like I think to the extent that you're always going to have this this split but or in kind of late in, in 21st century american capitalism you have work and you have leisure you're going to need to have that kind of rebalancing stimulated for work relaxed for for leisure the reproduction of um of labor power and the you know expenditure of your energies at work these are two absolute requirements and that's why i think you know the book isn't that much about hangovers or or doesn't you know not really about hangovers and, and come downs but i think that's an important part of it because that is part of the experience of of drug use also i'm told that you afterwards you have this you know this period of um you know you have the high and then the low and i think that that kind of um temporal like following after that's an important thing so i mean that's why i think for me it would be probably cocaine and, and alcohol you know these are the um, you know, it's the, it's something that that require that Americans need to have to to get pepped up and and to, to drive things forward. So maybe neoliberalism was was cocaine, and now we're kind of slipping to a to a drunken, uh, messy, post neoliberal um, period. But there's always going to be the hangover after that. So it's not it's never completely self contained. So I don't know if I really answered my own question. I kind of cheated as well by by giving two, um, but that's I guess my prerogative, um, Ben. Well, just quickly on your answer, George, uh, I've been thinking about different articles that I could maybe spin out of the book as sort of like further research. And one thing I'd really like to do is write a history of the speedball. I think in in some sense, it really captures the American dream. You get both the, the upper and the downer in one pill. Um, to my knowledge, the first uh, marketed speedball was called Dexamil. It was a, it was a combination amphetamine and benzodiazepine. Um, and when it hit the market, it was, you know, gangbusters. Like it was, uh, it, it instantly sort of like became a top selling drug. And I think that it inaugurated this, um, uh, you know, this, this trend that we see today in something like, uh, energy drinks spiked with alcohol, right? Like we want both things at the same time, not just like, you know, one for work and one for leisure, but, but sometimes both, both together. Um, Sorry, just just to jump in there, I I was I thought that speedballs were um, cocaine and heroin and and often injected. I didn't realize that they were that you could get this as a as a tablet, um, like um, over the counter. Is this? I mean, is this your what, what you were kind of talking about there? Not the, I guess the the off 
off-brand or like off-market versions or illegal versions, but actually, you know, this was an illegal, this, sorry, this was a legal um, drug that could be purchased by, by Americans. Yeah, I, I've heard about it talked in that way too, just uh, specifically as a combination of cocaine and heroin. Um, but I think that it, more generally, it's used to describe any combination of upper and downer. And in right. pharmaceutical form, that was Dexamil. I think in Britain, it was actually called Drynamil. It was the Purple Hearts. Um, uh, so it's it's it, it goes by different names. But um, yeah, I mean, pharmaceutical companies have long experimented with that essential combination, finding something to sort of get you up for the day while taking off the um, the edge and the jitteriness that amphetamines usually cause. Like they've long thought about that as a possibility. And, um, you know, oftentimes you get, cascading drug treatments as well right so especially um when you put you know children on adhd medications amphetamines sometimes they get kind of like jittery and then they'll go back to the doctor and be be diagnosed with a different disorder for which they're prescribed some kind of downer um these things are very you know very often go together not just in leisure but in um in psychiatry as well uh to answer the question i mean it is a tough yeah. one um, I think I would go with amphetamines. Um, I, I just kind of think that they're a constitutionally uh, American drug. Um, and, and different drugs, like other drugs, I think represent certain periods in American history. So, you know, psychedelics and the American counterculture. Uh, and then I guess today, the sort of emerging Silicon Valley bro culture, whatever. Um, cocaine, obviously, this, the, the, the 70s and 80s. Um, opioids in the present opioid crisis um you know sort of it, it relates the ominous state of the present quite well um but but yeah i just kind of think amphetamines are kind of ontologically american they're kind of the pharmacological version of the american dream you know um and i would say that that includes yeah. the the anxiety the twitchiness the volatility all of those things that make americans wonderful the, yeah, twitchy, uh, twitchy Americans. Um, so just, I guess, a final sort of um, set of questions or or one thing that I did want to ask you a little bit about, Ben, because I don't think we want to be um, seen, I was going to say, seen, heard on this podcast to be recommending um, these drugs to our to our listeners. But if they if listeners wanted to vicariously uh, experience some of these um, things that we've been talking about through cultural portrayals of drug usage or, or effects um and maybe this is a question to everybody you know what is the what are your particularly like cultural portrayals that you that you think are really um good or particularly bad um of some of the drugs that we've uh, that we've talked about i mean oh yeah almost i mean to the point of you know beyond cliche i suppose and you know a lot of the kind of culture industry is based around when I think of like American movies and I think part, you know, indie films as well, but really kind of like Hollywood films, I think about films that'll make you feel cool. And sometimes you want one of those movies, you know, you're like had a tough week and it's Friday and you're going to switch to me or, you know, it's Sunday and you're kind of hungover and you're like, I just want something to make me feel cool. And a lot of movies make you feel cool um, either by kind of replicating a drug effect or like depicting drug taking on, on camera. And you're like, that looks cool. I want to go do lines of blow in this like 70s hacienda style mansion in LA because I don't I don't even I'm not even thinking of a specific film you've probably thought listener of like five different films um where that's like a scene you know um or even satires of films like made in the 90s which kind of satirize that kind of 70s type of vibe anyway so like um I don't have a specific film in mind other than I guess that comment that you know 
that a lot of these movies are kind of like you know a, a, a substitute drug feeling and and therefore not very good depictions of drugs incidentally i think yeah yeah so one one it's not even film but one thing that i saw recently was industry i think it's hbo as well as bbc but there's some depictions of drug usage in that which were not were not fun at all it just made me feel uh, a bit anxious and a bit twitchy and not very nice because it was like yeah this is there's something realistic about this this is you know it's not so much a celebration it's not like fear and loathing in las vegas which is like one of the famous examples of like very over the top feeling cool on a on a friday or or sunday um or one of these kind of stoner comedies which you know are often pretty funny but it was like no this is horrible and overdone and 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 you've got these young people who just have too much money and they're just oh, they're gonna feel horrible tomorrow and i feel for them yeah. um watching <laughs> this yeah, I mean, I think that you all uh, just encapsulated the two flavors of sort of drug portrayal in, in popular culture. You get the sort of like heroism of it. It's like a lot of fun on the one hand, uh, but then you get more gritty, um, very depressing depictions as well. Um, you, you know, I, I always like The Wire. I think it holds up uh, after all these years. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of accuracy to the depiction given that david simon was a journalist and he was basing a lot of it on his 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 reporting um so you know for whatever faults it has i think it still holds up in a way um i mean one one thing that cultural depictions of the drug trade like to really focus on is the uh, extraordinary violence in the drug trade and um you know that's just a staple of american cinema in general i just saw john wick four um uh, but I, I think that that is that's a little bit off, you know. I mean, if the drug trade were really as violent as it's depicted, we wouldn't have so many drugs to go around, you know. As you might as you might guess, the drug trade for the most part uh, operates on on trust. Uh, you need trust in order for business to happen, um, and so violence, yes, it's there, but it's more the exception to, uh, to the rule. Um, as far as cult, like just cultural uh, depictions to to recommend, um, I, I guess I I point to two very different things. Like the first um, is Thomas De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater from eighteen twenty, um, and the, the the historian Richard Davenport Hines he sort of says that modern drug history is inaugurated by three different events. There's the British Opium War, there's new methods of organic chemistry that give us morphine and heroin and whatnot. And then there's the publication of De Quincey's uh, uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. It's really a remarkable book. It holds up. In, in some ways, it's almost like reading a tabloid article, like you could see it in the National Enquirer with like all caps headlines or something. <laughs> um, but, but in other ways, it's a very uh, sophisticated and engaging account of both the high highs and the low lows of, of drug dependence. And I think it still makes for great, great reading. Um, and the second one is very different. It's, uh, it's a film, uh, I think it's from 2010 or like early 2010s. Uh, it's Deborah Granick's uh, Winter's Bone. I think it's one of Jennifer Lawrence's first films. Um, and it's really, it, it stuck with me for a while and I can sort of still remember the feeling of watching it. It's, um, she does a really good job of portraying the kind of, uh, desolation and atomization into which drug cultures can fit. Um, this is a good, good film in general. I'd, I'd recommend it. That's two quite, uh, I think highbrow, um, but good, good recommendations, Phil, anything that, uh, um, 
because you know this is coming up to the weekend i mean listeners actually might not be listening to this on it's a, like on this a episode comes out on a tuesday and they're like can i stop talking about drugs and having fun one week's yeah and weekend's a long way away make sure that you really we release this on very early on a tuesday morning so that listeners are getting the full the full disconnect um but yeah phil well so i was reading an irvin welsh um piece uh, recently um, where he was uh, talking about how uh, the white working class have been forgotten, um, quite at odds with his kind of reputation as being very much a kind of um, ultra kind of liberal um, left spokesman, I suppose. Anyway, so I was thinking about train spotting and I give a shout out for train spotting as a particular kind of um, representation. And I guess the reason it kind of stays with me is because you know, there is nothing, there is no moment, I think, that I can recall from the film that glamorizes kind of drug consumption. And yet the movie has the reputation of being very much part of the kind of cool Britannia era um, and inaugurating kind of, you know, a certain, well, I mean, it was just very much associated with Blairism. So there's the famous toilet scene where um, Ewan McGregor's character kind of crawls out of the toilet after having gone down it to find the drugs that he accidentally shut out from his rectum, which had deposited them there, you know, and it's an amazing kind of cinematic shot. And it's hard to think of something more, um, you know, which kind of portrays uh, the um, consequences of addiction um, in a more kind of brutal uh, and disgusting way than crawling into a public, a kind of completely destroyed public toilet and swimming out of it in order to get, you know, so desperate for um, for your junk, as it were. Um, anyway, so it kind of makes me think of that, you know, kind of how a film can, um, can kind of romanticize, uh, you know, at once kind of romanticize drugs while also showing um you know showing being very kind of authentic about the portrayal or even kind of more than authentic kind of hyper real in terms of the portrayal of drugs and so it stayed with me for that reason but also because i remember like the posters i don't know i mean this is probably um before george and alex's time but the posters of the opening uh the opening uh monologue that ewan mcgregor's character delivers which was choose life I don't, and it's also in the book, you know, um, choose life, choose uh, doing DIY on a Saturday morning, choose matching furniture, choose having a holiday, choose 2.1 kids. And he kind of lists out all the things that he's rejecting by choosing drugs, kind of, and that his normie kind of square working class Scottish parents chose and that he's turning against. And it became kind of, um, again, kind of, uh, you know, a kind of statement I guess what sticks with me is the fact that it's kind of so openly nihilistic and yet became defining, oddly defining of Blair-eyed Britain. And I've never quite been able to work out how the two things kind of um, came together. Um, but they did. And obviously it made Ewan McGregor's career, you know, so. Yeah, very true. I'm, I mean, yeah, I remember seeing that kind of bright um, iron brew, orange, like choose life, um, you know, that. That's a Scottish reference. American listeners probably have no clue what Iron Brew is. It's a it's a weirdly addictive, very sugary, very Scottish um, drink. But yeah, just one final question um, before we before we wrap, Ben. Um, and yeah, just again to I mean, hopefully listeners have have taken this away from from this discussion. How like how you know good the book is in terms of giving some of these kind of insights to all of these different drugs, and you know making the case. I think as you 
you did earlier, Ben, that taken together, these are quick fixes. They are, you know, covering over um, problems. They're not permanent um, solutions, either the, either the drugs themselves to, to human problems or the policies that um, American governments have put in place. You know, these are all different sorts of quick fixes. Um, but yeah, you said you didn't, and in the book, you don't make many predictions, but one is an increase in, in psychedelics, um, particularly kind of microdosing. It seems like this is very widespread now. You have people, you know, before their, um, you know, having a work meeting of some sort thinking, oh, I might just microdose on some, on some mushrooms here. People putting like a drop of um, LSD in their, in their cornflakes um, because it, you know, this is, this is the world that we, we live in um, today and it it boosts creativity or something like that. Um, But yeah, do you see this as the next kind of phase? We're going to see potentially much more widespread use of psychedelics. I think so. We're, we're, we're definitely at an inflection point in a lot of ways in the history of drugs. Um, the, like I said earlier, the war on drugs continues on, but no one really believes in it. And I think that the decriminalization and legalization trends will will, will continue on and be, be more and more successful. Um, but, you know, that, that being said, I'm not so confident about predicting many futures for drugs just because... Um, you know, we don't really know what comes after neoliberalism. We're sort of just speculating. But I, I do kind of think that the one thing that we're, we're sort of, it's almost a path dependency at this point, um, is that psychedelics are going, many, many psychedelics are going to be uh, medically legal pretty soon. And, um, you know, I think that they're going to just be become very popular. Like a lot of people are suffering uh, through the present moment. And I think, psychedelics can offer people um, new ways of coping with the particular stressors of the moment um, in in new and very effective ways. Um, and and after that, you know, um, I mean, maybe to bolster um, Phil's case for, for marijuana a little bit, I think that there is something about the medicalization of marijuana that is, that is uh, paradigmatic in some way, because you know, there there had been long-standing uh, marijuana reform efforts, like pro-marijuana reform efforts, that had all come to naught for for various reasons. And um, when marijuana was um, medicalized first in California, a lot of people came and said, "You know, this is come on, this is obviously hypocritical. Like people going to get their med cards or whatever, like they just want to use it recreationally. They're not really using it for that purpose." And you could say uh, it was hypocritical in that sense, but at least the sort of uh, at least the hypocrisy paved the way for people to realize that it wasn't the danger that it was often made out to be. Right. So in some ways, the medical hypocrisy paved the way for more recreational use. Mm-hmm. And I, I think something similar is going to happen in the case of psychedelics. Like you could you could see. Um, the medicalization of, uh, or the, the medical use of, of MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, whatever. Uh, and then maybe, you know, a decade or two down the road, maybe we have this new, uh, recreational polydrug culture in America. Like I met someone the other day who wanted to start a new nightclub where they don't serve alcohol. They just serve, uh, different drinks, you know, microdosed with certain like psychedelic combinations or whatever. Mm. Um, mm. And it's, it, I mean, it, this is, could, this is it a, could a work. future. Yeah. It could listeners, work. Yeah. So listeners can't see the expression on George and Alex's faces right now. But, um, Shocked in a ball. But yeah, of course. Yes. 
No, I mean, alcohol has organized our social lives for so long. And I, I could see that grip of alcohol over nightlife um, not falling apart. I think people will always want to want to drink. Um, but I could see new experiments uh, with these kinds of things. And I, I think actually this is this is a possible future in some ways, but it's also a present reality in many liberal um, urban centers in America. You know, like you can... You know, you can just get psilocybin chocolate bars through various channels and stuff like that. And people are, you know, experimenting with new forms of what they hope will be will be normalcy. Um, it, it, it's difficult to tell, uh, but I think that there is a desire to create new new kinds of um, leisure and recreation in addition to finding new ways of solving the mental health crisis. I have to say, Ben, you're making me feel much more uh, rebellious about my planned um, drink of white wine with dinner for my Friday evening. Like now that I know that I'm kind of maintaining alcohol culture against the coming wave of corporate capital psychedel, you know, psychedelia, um, I feel I feel better about it. We're holding yeah, on to the old ways. Yeah, Reject exactly. It's because it's uncontrolled. You know, alcohol's all a bit kind of messy, and you know, uh, carefully dosed. That is also that is example, also is true. Like, has its illusion of control. Like lose your mind, but you know, in a very uh, delimited and and, and is, controlled, yeah. measured fashion. No, just just quickly, I, one one thing that yeah. we haven't talked about is just the different synthetic possibilities of psychedelics as well. So most people know psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, whatnot. Um, but there's uh, there's a, a, a website out there called arrowid.org. Um, it, it doesn't look like the kind of website you should go to. It looks like you might get a computer virus going <laughs> a, to a it. A favorite of my teenage years, arrowid.com. But they, you know, it's a website for self-professed psychonauts and they try out these new chemical substances. You know, the synthetic possibilities for drugs are potentially limitless. And they they try them out and they write about them and you look at the you look at the site and I, I would say ninety nine percent of the drugs on there I've never heard of before, and these are all potential potentially marketable substances and so it's not just you know a little bit of psilocybin in your drink, uh, it's um, any any number of different combinations that you can imagine in the synthetic world. I, I think that's a kind of a a bit of an optimistic note. To, to leave it on like new possibilities for leisure there's something there's something kind of, kind so of have you not been have you not been paying attention for the past hour and a half <laughs> no but there's i mean because otherwise it's a bit of a, a downer excuse the um excuse the pun but no ben just to say thanks you know it's again i'll say quick fixes and it's quite, it's quite a quick read as well so it's kind of a quick fix of a of a book even but yeah thanks so much for, for coming on and, and talking all this through with us yeah thanks guys it's great 